Well, I guess the world is full of uncomfortable truths that rugby league, rugby union, and Aussie rules will never be as popular as the beautiful game, the world game, the true football, soccer. <laughs> what an uncomfortable truth. Or that soccer will never really have the grassroots, sport, uh, grassroots support of Australia's greatest game, netball. Yeah. Netball. Here's another uncomfortable truth, that Sydney Uni is not the highest rating university in Australia. <laughs> can't, that can't be true, no. No, lies, fake news. Uh, uncomfortable truths, I'm just here to bring the uncomfortable truths. Here's another one. That middle-aged men like me who love cycling just never look good in lycra, despite what they think. There's an uncomfortable truth, it's also an unsightly truth. There's also uncomfortable truths on a big scale, isn't there? Climate change, world poverty, the reality of death. These are all uncomfortable truths. Well, tonight we're going to talk about an uncomfortable truth, the reality of God's coming judgment. We've seen this week that when God comes, he comes to rescue through judgment. And last night we started a bit of a deep dive into the future day of the Lord Jesus Christ when the Lord Jesus will return. We looked at the glorious rescue that Jesus will bring for all who trust him. And tonight we look at the judgment that comes as part of that rescue. We're looking at the judgment seat of Christ. The Lord Jesus spoke clearly about this coming day of judgment and his role as God's appointed judge. You can see it there on your page from John chapter 5. Jesus said, The Father has given the Son, speaking about himself, authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. There's that phrase again. Jesus is, he's claiming to be the Son of Man from Daniel 7, the one who we saw was given all authority and power over all people by his Father. And because he is this Son of Man, he's been given authority to judge. Jesus continues, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Now the background to what Jesus is saying there comes from another part of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12 verse 2, where we read this promise. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And Jesus is saying that will happen on the day I return and all the dead will rise. We see here a resurrection of everyone in order to receive what is due to each of us for the life that we've lived now, this future moment of judgment is reflected across the New Testament. For example, there on your page from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. He's just echoing the Lord Jesus, isn't he? In fact, the coming day of God's judgment was a core part of Paul's gospel message. 
He says there from Romans chapter 2, verse 16, he talks about the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Paul's gospel is that God will judge even the secret parts of our life before Jesus the judge. It's just an echo of Jesus' gospel. You know, when you um, realise there's a moment of real accountability coming, it gives urgency to the question, what do I need to do to be ready? So your parents have been away on a holiday and they've left you at home and now they're coming back. And they did tell you, keep the house clean and they're coming tomorrow. Yep, that guess that means time to clean up, right? Because, oh, well, of course, unless you were very diligent and tidied all... No, 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 no. They're coming back, it's time to clean up. You've got an exam coming. What do you need to do to be ready for that exam? What do I... I mean, you don't just say, oh, I'm just going to study broadly. No, no, you ask a very focused question. What do I really need to know to get through this exam? How much do I really need to learn to pass? And you spend more time calculating what percentage you need to get in the exam than you do actually studying for the exam, just to be sure, just to be sure. Well, it's the same here. If I have to appear before the Lord Jesus as my judge, what will be the basis of his judgment? I'd like to know that. What will he be assessing me against? Well, we can start actually with the passages we just looked at. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's the things done in the body, whether good or bad. And Paul was echoing Jesus, we saw in John chapter 5. Those who've done what is good versus those who have done what is evil. It sounds like it's just what we do. But then Romans chapter 2 that we looked at, it includes the secret things. I take it that's not just what you do in private that others don't know about, but also the internal things that maybe no one sees except the Lord Jesus. Our thoughts, our desires, our motivations. Now, if you know the Christian faith, that might sound all a little bit confusing. Seems here that it's all about the life that I live, what I do, what I think. But isn't our salvation based on faith, trusting Jesus, not on what I do, not on my works. For example, if you've got your Bible there, let's open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. I'm just going to look up two passages here. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul writes, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We're saved by grace. We're saved as an act of God's undeserved kindness through faith, not because of the things that we've done. And yet the Bible is full of warnings that Genuine faith will show itself in a life lived. So let's turn to a second passage, James chapter 2. James chapter 2. James chapter 2, look at verse 18. 
James chapter 2, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. And then James's comment is, show me your faith without deeds, I will show you my faith by what I do. Look down then to verse 26. Verse 26, he says, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. I take it that's why there's so many warnings in the Old Testament and in the New Testament from Jesus and reflected in the apostles' teachings throughout the New Testament. So many warnings against an empty faith, a faith that is just lip service and not heartfelt. Because genuine faith inevitably shows itself in a life, not a perfect life, it shows itself in a life of repentance from sin and striving for obedience. Of course, we still struggle with sin until the Lord Jesus returns. But the Christian life of faith will be characterised by repentance and the obedience that flows from faith. Your life shows that you are on the narrow road following Jesus in trust and obedience. Salvation is still by grace. You can never earn your salvation. You can never deserve eternal life no matter what you do. Our debt to God because of sin and our failings are just too great and they're too pervasive. But in his love, God chooses to gift salvation and eternal life to those who, however imperfectly, turn to his son, the Lord Jesus, in faith and put their trust in him. God could have chosen to save those people with red hair. He could have just said, no one deserves salvation, true. I'm just going to save people with red hair by grace. So how many people get saved? How many redheads have we got? Hand up. About what? One? One? Two? Three? Oh, sitting together. Ah, oh, redheads sit. sit I, there's a, I just learned a new thing. One, two. You're missing out. You maybe should move over here. But um, anyway. And oh, another one. Four people. Well done. Four people got saved. God could choose to save the people who just have red hair. He'd do that by his grace. Or... He could choose to save those who are shorter than 180 centimetres in height. Yeah. yeah. That's right. All that pent-up aggression about all those tall people. It's finally come out. Or, or he could choose to save everybody who lives west of Parramatta. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That would be a great act of grace, wouldn't it? Undeserved kindness there. Now, I say that as someone who grew up in Mount Druitt, right? I say that as someone who grew up in Mount Druitt. That's right. Instead, he chose to extend his undeserved kindness, not to the redheads, not to the short people, not to the Westies, he chose to extend it to people who turn to Jesus in faith. If you put your trust in Jesus, you are a recipient of his grace. So how does this come together? Have a look on your page there from Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20 verses 11 to 15. 
John writes, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Remember, apocalyptic imagery here. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. There's two sets of books here. One book set of books of deeds and then another book, Jesus' book of life. And it's not, I take it in this picture, it's not that one book, say the book of life, supersedes the others. Oh, you've done poorly over here, but okay, you're in the Lamb's book of life. I, I take it that that's not actually how it works, but that there's consistency between them. If your name is in the book of life, then the deeds of your life will reflect that genuine faith. Jesus can tell by looking at the total of my life, both the public and the secret, with all of its imperfections, he can tell by looking at my life whether or not I have genuine faith in him. Well, what happens then as a result of Jesus' judgment? Last night we saw the glory that God has in store for those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus. Tonight we're looking at the terrifying outcome for those who refuse the Lord Jesus. And I say the word terrifying deliberately. It is, I think, the right word to capture the teaching of the Lord Jesus and of the Bible as a whole. So let's look at the outcome for those who refuse Christ. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, there on your page, they will suffer the punishment, that is those who reject Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Punishment is what we deserve for refusing to worship the one true living God and rejecting his word and way. It is an objective universal moral wrong to refuse to honour the one true living God as God when he's created and sustained us and he's blessed us with life. And we are all guilty of that moral wrong to some extent. And so punishment is what we will receive for that rebellion unless we take hold of the grace he's offered us in the Lord Jesus. Well, what will this punishment entail? Paul says there in that verse, eternal destruction. It mirrors the eternal life that God gifts as an act of grace to those who turn to Christ. What will that destruction mean? Well, in that verse, it's explained as being away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Jesus is very clear. You want to avoid this eternal destruction at any cost. If you could sacrifice a limb or an eye to avoid it, says Jesus, 
then do it. Eternal destruction is that terrifying. Jesus says there in Mark chapter 9, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Note there's only two outcomes there, according to Jesus. Entry into the glorious kingdom of God or being thrown into hell. Literally, the word he uses in the original is Gehenna. And Gehenna, as you can see there in a note I've got in your, in your page there, Gehenna was originally the name of the rubbish tip outside Jerusalem. However, it had an earlier and terrible history as a place of child sacrifice. If you can look it up in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, where it was known as the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. And as a result of the terrible things that the Israelites did there in this place, it then became synonymous with God's judgment on Israel's rebellion. If you look up Jeremiah chapter 7, you can see that God says, because of what you've been doing in this place, I am going to bring judgment on you, my people, and your bodies are going to heap up in this valley. And so the word Gehenna became synonymous with God, the place of God's judgment. And because it became a rubbish tip, that's why there was fires and worms there. And Jesus then used this place, Gehenna, to describe metaphorically the judgment of God. Now, there are various descriptions in the Bible of the judgment of God on those who reject him and his son, the Lord Jesus. I've put some of them there on your page. We can start there with the one we just read from 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. Hell or Gehenna is equivalent to everlasting destruction. Or in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, it's described as the second death. That is the second and final death beyond physical death. In Hebrews chapter 10, it's described as the raging fire that consumes. In Romans 2, it's wrath, fury, trouble and distress. Matthew chapter 25, it's eternal punishment. In Matthew 8, it's darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Jesus' parables in Luke 16, it's a place of torment. In Matthew 18 and Jude 7, it's an eternal fire. In Revelation 20, in its apocalyptic imagery, it's a lake of fire or a lake of burning sulphur. And there in Matthew 18, which we also saw in Mark chapter 9, it's described as the place where their worm never dies and the fire is not quenched. These are terrible, terrifying descriptions, but what sort of experience, what sort of existence is actually being described? Don Carson has written, Hell is real... The question is how far the descriptions of it are to be taken literally. Because the New Testament uses images and metaphors to describe the experience of God's judgment, just as it uses images and metaphors to describe God's glorious new creation. We shouldn't assume that we're meant to take them literally, but then they aren't a fairy tale 
They are describing something real, even if it's using images and metaphors to do so. So John Calvin, the 16th century reformer, had some good advice. He said, we should lay aside foolish speculations by which foolish men weary themselves to no purpose. And rather, we should satisfy ourselves with believing that these forms of speech denote, in a manner suited to our feeble capacity, a dreadful torment, which no one can comprehend and which no language can express. He's saying, don't get hung up on the detail of these descriptions, given that they are images and metaphors, but get God's point. Hell is a terrifying torment which you want to avoid at all costs. So can we say anything then? What can we say about the reality to which these descriptions point? Well, three truths I think we can say with absolute certainty. First of all, hell is the real wrath of God against unrepentant sinners. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, But because of your hardness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment is revealed. That is, hell is the full experience of God's just wrath, his anger against my sin. It is right to be angry against wrongdoing. And sin really is wrongdoing. It's wrong. God is right to be angry with it. And God's anger against sin is terrifying. If you think, oh, surely it won't be too bad, just go back and read the rest of the Bible. Read especially the Old Testament. Because just as Israel, Old Testament Israel's rescue was just a faint foretaste of the glories to come in Christ... So too, the judgments in the Old Testament were just a pale shadow of the full judgment of God against wickedness when Jesus returns. Those Old Testament judgments are recorded for us to educate us, to calibrate our sense of how wrong sin really is and to get our heads around what sin really deserves. They are there to forewarn us towards repentance in the light of Jesus' coming judgment. If we keep refusing the Lord Jesus, then Paul says our hard and unrepentant hearts are storing up wrath for ourselves. That would be a pretty, frankly, foolish and stupid thing to store up for yourself. You got bored of stamp collecting? Yeah, not really doing it for you anymore. Fair enough. And I mean, have you tried collecting teddy bears? They're cute. No, you're beyond that. Why don't you try storing up for yourself God's wrath? <laughs> try that for a while. How would that go? Are you crazy? God's anger against sin is real and terrifying. Why would you want to store up God's wrath against sin for yourself? As the writer to the Hebrews said, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Or as we've seen elsewhere, who can stand on the day of his coming? Answer, no one, unless they've accepted his grace in the Lord Jesus. Or again in Hebrews chapter 12, 
Our God is a consuming fire. So first of all, hell is the real wrath of God against unrepentant sinners. Second, hell is real separation or exclusion from the kingdom and the blessings of God. Jesus made it clear that there are only two outcomes. Hell will be the exclusion from all of God's blessings. You sometimes hear people joke about hell and they say, yeah, but I'll be there with all my mates or we'll just party on together. It's going to be great. They forget that all good things like friendship and partying and good times, those all come as good things from God. We won't be experiencing those things when we're cut off from him and his blessings. I watched Avatar The Way of Water recently. Don't worry, no spoilers. But there was a a defiant line in it from a character, Miles uh, Quaritch, a US Marine. And he says this, he says, A Marine can't be defeated. Oh, you can kill us, but we'll just regroup in hell. Arrogant, stupid, ignorant. Mateship, camaraderie, teamwork, those are all blessings from God. What the experience of hell will be like, whatever it's like, it will mean being excluded from all of those blessings. So third, hell is final and eternal. The eternal nature of God's wrath against our sin, that's a repeated theme of the New Testament descriptions that we looked at a moment ago. Eternal destruction, eternal punishment, even the description where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched, is a picture of eternality. Hell is a final and eternal condemnation. There's no way out and there's no way back. There's no redo exam. There's no resubmit. There's no alternative pathway. There's no misadventure appeal. Hell is final Eternal, real, and terrifying. That's why Jesus said it'd be better to enter the kingdom of God with one arm or one eye than to have both arms, both eyes, and be thrown into hell. What about purgatory? You might have heard of the idea of purgatory. It's a Roman Catholic idea that after you die, there exists the opportunity to purge yourself of unrepentant sin in your life and work off some of the punishment for sin that you deserve. And in that way, through suffering in purgatory, you have the chance to shift the needle, so to speak, for yourself, from God's wrath to God's grace. So you can graduate from condemnation to glory. It's a bit like school detention or prison time. You serve time for your crime and then you'll be set free. Well, Tom Wright points out this is entirely wishful thinking in the quote there on your page. Purgatory, he says, was a late Western innovation without biblical support. And its supposed theological foundations are now questioned by leading Roman Catholic theologians themselves. As the reformers insisted, bodily death itself is the destruction of the sinful person. There is nothing left to purge. 
Any suggestion that purgatory was necessary as a punishment for sins is, of course, abhorrent to anyone with even a faint understanding of the Apostle Paul, who teaches that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The sufferings of the present time, not of some post-mortem state, are the valley through which we have to pass in order to reach the glorious future. This life is the moment of decision-making. There are no opportunities after death to make things right. Now is the time to turn to Christ and be saved from the judgment to come. A further question people ask, given that hell is final and eternal, is whether our experience of God's wrath in hell will be eternally conscious or not. There's a debate amongst evangelicals whether hell does consist in an eternity of conscious torment in parallel to the eternal conscious life of the saved. Just pointing out, clearly hell is final and eternal, there's no disagreement on that, and it clearly involves torment and distress, but is that torment and distress an eternal experience? Or at some point, after a period of torment and distress, are those in hell annihilated? There are Bible-believing evangelicals on both sides of this debate. That is, Christians who love Jesus and are committed to believing whatever the Bible, rightly understood, is found to teach. So for those arguing for a period of conscious torment followed by annihilation, which, to be fair, is probably the minority position amongst evangelicals, the points they make in support of their position are about the language and the imagery used in the descriptions of hell that we find in the New Testament, and they say they don't clearly portray an eternity of conscious torment. Further, theologically, they claim it's hard to see how an eternity of conscious torment is a just punishment for a finite life of sin. They also ask questions about, was it possible for Jesus to experience the full weight of hell as an eternity of conscious torment within the three days between his crucifixion and his resurrection? One evangelical who cautiously advocates considering this position was John Stott. But note his very cautious advocacy. He doesn't say this is the right understanding of hell, but that it should be admitted that it is not incompatible with what the Bible teaches and therefore should at least be considered. Have a look at what he says there in the, on the page. He says, I do not dogmatise about the position to which I've come. I hold it tentatively. But I do plead for frank dialogue among evangelicals on the basis of Scripture. I also believe that the ultimate annihilation of the wicked should at least be accepted as a legitimate biblically founded alternative to their eternal conscious torment. Other evangelicals, and I think I'd say the majority, strongly disagree. For those who say eternal conscious torment is what the Bible teaches, they say that contrary to what John Stott and others claim, the language and the imagery used to describe hell does indicate an eternity of conscious torment. Moreover, they see an appropriate symmetry between an eternity of conscious torment and the eternity of conscious life that Jesus brings. And they maintain that some of the objections raised by those suggesting an eventual annihilation about the justice of God or the experience of the Lord Jesus, 
They say they have sound theological responses when we properly consider the moral wrongness of sin and the two natures of Christ as fully divine and human. So Robert Raymond, as one example there on your page, concludes, I must conclude that the doctrines of the final judgment and of hell for the impenitent and the unbeliever are among the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith and that conscious eternal torment awaits the unrepentant sinner. These things, he says, are spoken of clearly and plainly in the New Testament. Well, whatever conclusion you come to, there is unanimous agreement amongst evangelicals that hell is real conscious torment, a conscious, terrifying experience of God's just anger against our sin. How terrifying? Well, do you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he died? The Gospel writers record for us that he pleaded with his heavenly Father three times that if possible, his Father would spare him from having to drink from the cup of his Father's wrath, which Jesus knew was his to drink if he was to save us. It wasn't physical death, I take it, that Jesus was scared of. After all, he knew he would rise again. I assume that it was the prospect of experiencing hell, the full and terrifying experience of his father's wrath against sin. So who ends up in hell? Well, the answer is very clear in the Bible. All who are without Christ. In 1 John 5 we read, And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who doesn't have the Son of God does not have life. When it comes to the final judgment, it won't matter how moral you've been or how you've contributed to society. It doesn't matter how regular you've been at church or how many times you've come along to the EU. It won't matter in itself who you've slept with or who you've married or what job you've done or how much you've prayed in your life. Those things are only relevant insofar as they reveal the genuineness or otherwise of your faith. Do you have the Son through repentance and faith? If you do, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear in the coming judgment. God promises that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You've already passed from death to life. But if you do not have the Son through repentance and faith, then all that remains is the terrifying prospect of judgment and the sure verdict of hell. All this is very clear in the Bible. It is also deeply distressing. How can God do this? How do we make sense of his judgment? I'm going to spend the rest of the evening trying to think through that question. The first thing to say is that hell is the just response of the sovereign God to genuine human agency and responsibility. 
You can see Tom Wright's observation there on your page. He says, but judgment is necessary unless we were to conclude absurdly that nothing much is wrong or blasphemously that God doesn't mind very much. Of course there's things wrong in this world. There's evil, there's wickedness, there's abuse. To claim otherwise, you would have to be ignorant of all of human history. You'd have to be ignorant or impervious to the injustice and hurt of the people around you. And you would have to have led the most charmed life, never have experienced any wrongdoing and never have done anything wrong yourself. It would just be absurd to claim there's nothing at all wrong in the world. And if you do have enough of a heart and a sense of justice to acknowledge that there is wrong in the world and you wish that something would be done about it, how much more does the one true living God long for something to be done about it? He who created and sustains this world in love and who has good plans for its glorious and eternal future. To say, look, God should just be cool with whatever happens. He should just sweep it all under the carpet and forget about it. To say that that's what God should be like is to blaspheme his character. Why should he care less about what's wrong in the world than you. I mean, surely you want him to care more than you. Or I wonder sometimes if there's a bit of hypocrisy, actually, in what we want. I want him to care less when it's me who's not done the right thing or when it's my friends who've not done what he wants. I want him to care less then, but I want him to care a lot when it's stuff that other people have done that I don't like. We want God to show selective blindness in his justice. We'd like, frankly, special treatment. There's a word for that when it comes to justice. It's called corruption. Is that the real standard of justice that we want? John Webster has an analogy that I find helpful. He says the one true living God judges and destroys evil for the same reason that health professionals seek to eliminate disease. Why do you seek to eliminate disease? Because you're being paid a lot of money to do it. No, let's pretend that there's a better reason than that. Why do you seek to eliminate disease if you're a health professional? Because disease compromises human flourishing. So you want to eradicate it. Well, God is so committed in love to his world that he won't let evil continue. He's promised to condemn it so that his creatures and the whole world can flourish as he's always intended. Reflecting on God's response to human sin, C.S. Lewis had an interesting way of putting it there on your page. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, your will be done, and those to whom God says, your will be done. That is, he's saying, you reject me, so be it. And so C.S. Lewis concludes, all that are in hell, choose it. If you spend your life rejecting God, trying to keep him out of your life, then God eventually says, okay, and excludes you from his presence. Now, I can imagine some might say at that point, well, hang on, 
I should be able to have all the good things from God without having to worship him. I should be able to have all the good things from God without having to worship him. Do you think that's right? Imagine for a moment you said to your parents, you should give me every good blessing in your power while I completely refuse to have any relationship with you. You just should give me all those things. How do you think that would go? What's more, do you think that would be right? Do you think that would be a morally reasonable thing to do? Or imagine for a moment you're the parent and it's your child who decides to live like that and say that to you. Why do you think God should find that way of approaching him completely fine? Or you might say, but look, those who reject God, they have no idea what they're doing. They don't realise the consequences of rejecting God. They have no idea of the reality and severity of God's judgment that they're facing. Well, that, it could be true that they're just ignorant, that they don't know. In which case, surely it's on us to let them know. Don't you want to let them know? Or it could be that they've heard about it, but they're dismissive of it. It seems to them like a fairy tale, invented to frighten unsophisticated people into obedient compliance. But that's just dismissing and rejecting God's word all over again. Because God has given us warnings about his coming. He's told us about the coming judgment over and over again in the Bible. And the Bible says he's even given proof of the coming judgment by raising the judge, the Lord Jesus, from the dead so that we can be assured it's coming. The conclusion, hell is God's just condemnation of human sin. But how can we handle it? What other truths from God's word will help us understand it and live with it? Well, I've listed five truths on your page in the dot points. And no doubt there's more that we could add that probably would be helpful. But let's start with these five. And first and most importantly, we need to hold on to the truth that the gospel of Jesus is good news for sinners facing judgment. Jesus has taken our sin upon himself and he's endured God's wrath for us. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Over and over the New Testament proclaims the rescue for all who will believe through the judgment of Jesus' cross. God's judgment of sin is a tragic necessity but his rescuing Christ for sinners, that is an eternity-transforming gift. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1 says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Or in John chapter 3 verse 17, we're reassured, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The gospel of Jesus is good news for sinners facing judgment. So, don't be ashamed of the gospel. It is the good news of God's saving grace, freely available to needy sinners. Second truth to hang on to. God does not desire the death of any sinner. God is love. 
And love is compassion and mercy to those who don't deserve it. We deserve God's condemnation because of our sin, but God wants us to live and to live eternally with him in glory. So, when your heart aches for those who don't know Jesus, know that that moment where your heart is aching for them, that is the work of God's Spirit in you, aligning your heart to His heart. That is His heart for them too. He desires their rescue more than you or I ever can. Do you remember that moment in the Gospels when Jesus was approaching Jerusalem? The very place which He knew would reject Him and kill Him. And what happened as he came and looked over Jerusalem? He wept. He cried. Not because they were going to reject him and kill him. Jesus shed tears because he knew the judgment of God that would fall on Jerusalem as a result of their rejection of him. Jesus wept over their hard hearts. So be comforted, God too longs with tears for your family to know Jesus. God weeps with tears for your friends and your workmates and your classmates that they might come to know Jesus and put their trust in him. Third truth to hold on to, the spirit blows where he wills. So Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, It is God who pours out his spirit into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The spirit opens our eyes and softens our hearts and grants us faith in the Lord Jesus where previously there was just rejection. So pray. Pray that the Lord would pour out his spirit into the hearts of of the unbelievers in your life. Pray that he would pour out the Spirit into the hearts of the unbelievers at Sydney Uni, all 70,000 of them. Pray he would pour out his Spirit into the hearts of unbelievers around the world so that they might see the Lord Jesus and hear his gospel, that they might turn to him and be saved. Fourth truth to hold on to, there are no hearts too hard. A moment ago, I mentioned 1 Timothy chapter 1, where Paul said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul continues, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, he says, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. If you think your family or your friends are just too lost, too ignorant, too hard-hearted, too old even, for Jesus and his gospel, it's just not true. It's not true. There are no hard cases for God. No eyes the Lord can't open. No stony heart which the wind of his spirit can't reach and transform. 
So, don't give up. Persist in prayer and pointing to Jesus. Not because persistence is guaranteed to be effective, but because you just never know when God will grant that prayer or will open up a place for his word in their heart and draw them to Christ. Fifth truth to hold on to. Judgment is good news for all who long for justice. Remember that judgment is fundamentally good news for those who long for justice. The problem isn't with judgment and God's justice. The problem is we don't want justice deeply enough. We don't want justice. We want special treatment. But selective special treatment, where's the equity? Where's the justice in that? God's way is so much better. He takes the cost of justice upon himself at the cross so that he might be gracious and rescue everyone who wants it through turning to Christ. So, don't shy away from the announcement of God's judgment. The announcement of God's coming judgment is good news for all who long for justice. Because God has given what you need to survive that judgment in the Lord Jesus Christ. A final reflection. When we consider the reality of Jesus coming as judge, love speaks up. Uh, the passage reference is missing. The passage you've got in front of you, this section of the notes, is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 through to chapter 6, verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 through to 6, verse 1. Let's read what Paul says here. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. That is, we don't keep this knowledge of the coming judgment to ourselves. Knowing God's judgment rightly motivates me to live for him, but it should also motivate me to see others live for him. Because I don't want to see them come under his condemnation when they are judged. So we try to persuade them in light of the coming judgment. Except, do we? Do we try to persuade them? Or do we stay silent? Let's continue on with what Paul says there from verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. It's not merely fear of judgment that motivates me to speak. Alongside it and thoroughly wrapped up with it is understanding how much Christ has loved them. And then Paul continues, verse 18. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, 
And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favour I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. God's appeal to you, to those who are lost, is understand you do not need to face hell. Christ became sin for you. You can be fully reconciled to me. That is the one true living God's appeal to his world. And he makes that appeal through us. So I may say, if you are still not committed to God in faith, hear the one true living God's appeal to you personally tonight. Be reconciled to God. On behalf of the risen Christ, we implore you, we beg you tonight, turn and trust in him. Because God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for you. So that you might not suffer the eternal punishment of hell. He wants you to be reconciled to himself so that you might know him as your loving heavenly father. And that you might have the sure hope of sharing his glory in the new creation. Now is the time of God's patience and favour. Turn to him before it is too late. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Now, maybe you've come to this conference acknowledging yourself as not a believer, not a follower of Christ. God's appeal is to you. Come to Jesus tonight and be saved. And maybe you come along to annual conference and you've been around Christian things for quite a while. Maybe you have went to chapel at school or you go along to a youth group and you've been coming along a bit to the EU and you're here. And you, but you know in your heart you've not really committed to Jesus. Everyone around you might think you're a Christian, <laughs> but you know the truth. Hear the one true living God's appeal to you tonight. Come to Jesus. Turn to Jesus and be saved. At the end of tonight's session, there'll be some EU staff down the front. And I'd, why don't you come down tonight, pray with them and commit your life to Jesus. That is the only way to enjoy the life that is really life. And avoid the certainty of hell that we all deserve. Paul understands in this passage his responsibility. God has committed his message and appeal about reconciliation to us. We are Jesus' ambassadors, sent by Jesus with his message and appeal. We are Jesus' mouthpieces. And Paul, according to this passage, he speaks up. Not just because he understands it's his responsibility as God's mouthpiece. The reason he speaks up is because he has a right fear of the coming judgment on them. 
And he has an understanding of Christ's love dying in their place. Fear of judgment of others or for others and the love of Christ for others. That's what drives him to fulfill his responsibility to speak up. So I've been wondering why then, in the light of that, do we so often, and I'm talking about myself, do we so often keep silent, especially about God's judgment? Why don't we speak up? Let me share two reasons that have occurred to me, and there's probably more. First of all, I think we don't speak up about Jesus' coming judgment because we think fear is an inadequate and an inadequate reason to become a Christian. But in the Bible, a right fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. You can't live wisely in this world, especially in light of the judgment seat of Christ, without having a right fear of the Lord God. Moreover, as this passage from 2 Corinthians 5 teaches us, judgment and grace or fear and love always go together. If we keep silent about judgment... I think we're in real danger of diminishing people's understanding of God's love. Love is only seen in full colour when the darkness of hell is in the picture. Because that is how much Christ loved us. So that you and I don't have to face that. Now, you and I might know this if you've been around Christian things for a while. And what's more, we might praise God for it. We sing about it, for goodness sake. But why would we only share half of that picture with those who are not yet saved? Why would we only talk about God's love? Well, that leads me to my second reason why I think we might stay silent about judgment. I wonder if we stay silent about judgment because we're pretty confident that it will be an uncomfortable and unpopular message and we fear that we'll get caught in the blowback, like in the reaction. So we don't want, to, we don't want our friends or our family to think that we're some sort of cartoon stereotype Christian, all fire and brimstone and end of the world-ish, even though we do actually believe the end is coming. We don't want them to think that we're judging or criticising them as though we think ourselves somehow superior because we don't. And we don't want to make them uncomfortable or angry. But I, behind, I think, all of those worries is a basic fear. We're more fearful of our friends than fearful for them. I think we're more fearful of our friends than fearful for them. We're more fearful of their reactions towards us than of what they will face if they meet the Lord Jesus, their judge, unprepared. Or to put it in another way, because fear and love go together in this passage, I wonder if we're more driven by our love of our comfort in this relationship than compelled by Christ's love for them who died to save them from the hell that they are headed towards. And so as a result, we don't relay Jesus' appeal. We're like ambassadors with our mouths taped shut. 
We make it all about me, my fears, my comfort, and we leave them behind. But what am I leaving them to? The terrifying eternal reality of hell when Christ has died to save them from it. It actually makes me sick to think about it, to think about my own selfishness and my own paltry fears and weak insecurities that so often have stopped me from just sharing the reality of the coming judgment and Christ's love. Aren't the things of God bigger than my insecurities and my little fears? Why am I not trusting that he can use me as his mouthpiece? So what should I do? Three things. Three suggestions. Let the fear of Jesus coming judgment on your friends and let your knowledge of Christ's extreme love for your friends, let that understanding of the fear and the love drive you forward. Let those twin truths overcome and push down your selfishness. And I say that to myself. Secondly, pray. Pray. Just pray. (laughs) Especially if you're scared of the reaction of family and friends. Pray that God would prepare the way and soften their hearts. Pray that God would open up opportunities for you to speak the truth of Jesus' gospel. Pray that God would give you the words to speak, truthful words, honest words, gentle words, loving words, humble words. Pray that God would give you boldness from his spirit. And pray that God would fill them with his spirit, that they would come to faith in Christ. Remember, there are no hard cases. The spirit blows where he wills. Third, speak up. Love speaks. When the opportunity comes, because you've been praying for it, and you sense it's just there. Oh, here it comes. Yeah, oh, I could say something now. When that moment comes, take it. Take it in weakness and in confidence in God and in desperate, urgent prayers for make me bold right now. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Take it at that moment. Share the gospel of Jesus in all its fullness, the great love of Christ in dying for all of us so that we no longer need to fear the condemnation of hell that we undoubtedly deserve. I'm going to give you a few moments to fill in the response wheel there. Something for which you're thankful, a question you have, a response you'd like to make some good news that you'd like to share and maybe something new, a new thought or something you've learned tonight.
Before we, um, before we stand and sing our final song, I just feel like it would uh, be good for us to pray. But what I'm going to do is, um, earlier this year I had the privilege of uh, going and teaching the Bible to some people in Vanuatu. Uh, and the, our Ni Vanuatu brothers and sisters have a different way sometimes of praying together. Uh, we used to we normally just have one person leading prayer, but they they sometimes do prayer where everybody prays at once because God hears all our prayers. Everyone prays at once for whatever's on their heart, and then comes to a close when led from the front. And so I think we're going to do that. This is what I'd like you to think about. I'd like you to think about who are the, who are the two people, three people who are in your life who don't yet know the Lord who are on your heart, just from the things we've been talking about tonight? Who are the two or three people who are on your heart? I'm going to invite you, we're all going to pray together out loud. I'm going to invite you to pray out loud that God would have mercy on them and that God would soften their hearts and that God would give you an opportunity to speak of the good news of the Lord Jesus and that God would make you bold. <laughs> And God will give you the words to say. And that God will bring them to salvation and faith. So can you think of two or three people? We're all going to pray out loud together. And then I'll draw us all to close. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we know that you do not desire the death of any sinner, but rather that they would turn to your son Jesus and live. We pray, please, you would have mercy on these people who we've mentioned to you tonight. We pray, please, that you would see each one of them saved, not a single one of them lost into all eternity. We pray, please, that you would open up their hearts and their minds, that you would soften their hearts towards you. We pray, Father, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would make us bold and give us opportunities to share your great love in the Lord Jesus. We pray, please, Father, you would save them. And we pray, please, Father, that you would pour out your spirit at Sydney University, that you would draw thousands to yourself so that they might not be lost into all eternity, but they might know the joy of your salvation and praise you forever and ever. We pray, Father, you would make us as your people bold on campus, that we would not shy away from the truths of your gospel, but we would proclaim them humbly and full of love and full of confidence in your power to save through this message of Jesus. We pray these things for your glory and your kingdom and for their salvation. We pray it in Jesus' name.